Welcome to the 66 to 87 Pop Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Reed, and I'm joined by Penguins beat writer Taylor Haas. And later on, both of us will be joined by Dave Molinari, who's on the road covering the team right now, and hockey columnist Larry Brooks of the New York Post. This is our inaugural Penguins podcast on DK Sports Radio. And Wednesday morning, uh, I started brainstorming topics we could discuss. I was thinking, you know, the mounting injury problems and the left shot defensemen who were dropping like spinal tap bass players. The offensive funk Evgeny Malkin has been in. Uh, the concern with the Penguins always having to play from behind. Within a few hours, Taylor, none of those subjects mattered because Jim Rutherford, the architect of back-to-back Stanley Cup champions in 2016 and 17, was stepping down as general manager. And to quote Clark Griswold in Christmas Vacation, if I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am right now. Taylor, we've had a couple days to kind of process this stunning news, a time in which the Penguins have dropped a couple of games in Boston. What impact do you think Rutherford's departure is going to have on this team between now and the end of the regular season? Yeah, I mean, that's tough. I mean, this isn't really an ideal time to be looking for his replacement. It's a shortened season. Um, You know, they're going to have the trade deadline uh, really not that far away, uh, relatively. And uh, I mean, Patrick Alvin is the guy in charge. He has complete and total control. And um, he's only barely been been the assistant. They only just recently promoted him to the assistant GM. Um, before that, he was, I mean, he's been around a while, 15 years, but he was like the director of scouting before that, a scout. So, I mean, the guy who hasn't even really been an assistant GM that long is now uh, in charge of making these moves. You know, one of the things that we all got to know, I think Jim, 50 trades? Has it been like 50 trades he's made in the time since he's been here? That sounds about right. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, Jim, as everyone knows, Jim Rutherford, a, a Hall of Fame builder, uh, a guy who was never, ever afraid to roll the dice, uh, especially a trade deadline. He was not afraid about giving away first-round draft picks to bring in veterans, some that really helped the team and some that sometimes didn't work. I'm wondering, in your opinion, do you think – that who is ever running this show between now and then, whether they bring in a permanent guy in the next week or it's Alvin's show to run to the deadline, do you think that person can be or will be as aggressive as Rutherford has been in the time that he's been here? I, I think it's going to be hard. I mean, this season, I mean, if, if you bring in a new a new GM, he's just going to be getting to know this team. Uh, and then, I mean, it, same thing with Alvin. Alvin, he's just, he's just coming in. I don't know. Uh, I mean, he's primarily dealt with prospects before this. I mean, he's been around for a while, like I said, but uh, I don't know how he can be that aggressive when either him, him or whoever they bring in hasn't been involved with this team that long. And I, and I, and I, and I, I don't disagree with you, but I, I think one of the interesting dynamics here that we need to discuss is don't forget this team is in a, a win down mode. I think David Morehouse was saying that, the, you know, that they want to put banners uh, in rafters here. So, uh, you know, if, if they are, are, are trying to win a cup this year and, and, and moves that they might have to make just to get them in the playoffs, who knows what's going to happen in this shortened season, um, they may be forced to try to go out and, and make a deal. And like you said, you have uh, someone who just kind of gotten into this position and are they going to be willing to step up and, and have to make a deal if, 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 if that's what uh, the team wants them to do? Yeah, and I mean, 
another thing is Morehouse talked about, you know, Alvin, at least for now, um, with the interim tag, he's still kind of, he's pretty much going to be answering to Mario Lemieux. Morehouse called Lemieux like his backup, but it sounds like Lemieux is still going to be pretty involved like right now for the time being. So uh, you also have to wonder, he did say Alvin has complete control, but he also said like Lemieux is going to have a hand in it. So you have to wonder what uh, really he's going to be able to make. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, you and Dave have been working so hard. I hope uh, our readers and subscribers go on to the DK Pittsburgh Sport website. There's so many stories up there right now, uh, not just game stories, but just stories about the you know uh, this 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 seismic change in the organization uh, with Jim Rutherford leaving unexpectedly. Uh, there's so much good stuff up there. I hope, hope fans will be able to read, get up and read it. And one of the things now that everyone wants to know, Taylor, is who's going to be the GM? Who uh, Who is going to come in here? You guys have been kind of assembling a, a list, as a lot of people have. Give me your three or four people that, that fans should kind of look out for right now as, as maybe candidates that, that really are going to get serious looks here by the Lemieux, Lemieux Group. Yeah, I think the the biggest one that people the biggest name people keep throwing around is uh, Jason Botterill. Um, was fired. He you know obviously used to be uh, an associate GM with the Penguins. Went to Buffalo. He got fired. Now he's an he just got hired as an assistant GM in Seattle. Um, a couple other big names on uh, floating around out there: Ron Hextall. Uh, that I think that would be very interesting. Uh, Dan McKinnon. He's assistant GM in Jersey. And then uh, Lauren Skillman, who's an assistant in uh, Toronto, and um, he used to be a former director of player personnel with the Penguins. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, th- th- there's a couple guys with you know connections out there, uh, but I mean, Botterill is is what I know what fans are, are really wanting. I think that's tough because first of all, I mean, he just got hired, so you don't know if Ron Francis would even let him um, have that conversation with the Penguins, and then even then, I mean. The, the penguins the window's not that that going to be open for that much longer but i mean in in seattle you know botterell has the chance to really uh, build a team from the ground up uh with ron francis there and i mean that might be more appealing than taking out the head job here yeah it's interesting and it's, and it's a, to- a topic we're going to get into uh uh a little bit later in, in the program as far as you know how appealing this job actually is you know you it's hard to say that with with some of the, the great names and future Hall of Famers that are on this roster, but they're also guys that are headed toward their mid-30s. But we'll 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 get to that subject uh, a, a little bit later. The other thing I want to talk to you about just right now, and, and again, this is this podcast is going to be almost all about the transition of power uh, with with Jim Rutherford stepping down. But one thing whoever is running this team has to deal with right now is the problems on the blue line with the injuries that are that are mounting. And again, it's a very short season. Um, what do you see there? And, and how concerning should we be uh, w- with the guys that are out of this lineup right now? Brian Dumlin, of course, is, is the biggest name there uh, that's going to be out for a while. Uh, how, how worrisome is this? Yeah, I, don't, I I think it really started to to catch up with them Thursday. I mean, just it's pretty everyone on the left side. Um, I mean, they started out the season on the left side. Uh, Dumlin, Pedersen, Matheson, and then Ricola is like that extra guy on the left side, and they're all hurt right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, you have Marino playing on his offside, which isn't ideal. Um, 
Pio Joseph, who has been one of the bright spots this season, he's on the top pairing now. He he's doing well. Um, but I mean, on the third pairing uh, Thursday, Kevin Churchman, who hasn't you know played in uh, NHL game since uh, 2014, he really didn't look that good. I'm not gonna <laughs> he, I'm, I'm not gonna right. rip him. He's tenth right. on the depth depth chart for a reason. Um, right. Yeah. He had a, he had a tough he had a tough introduction uh, last night. Uh, the first goal, he kind of it was the, the puck was kind of a hot potato came right to him, yeah. put it right back out in the slot and it was in the back of the net uh, a, a moment later um you know the and the other thing you worry about too is you, you start to worry about Latang, of course who is what is he 33 34 yeah. you know you worry about having to run him into the ground early in the year and i thought the other point you made that was really good is you when you have the development of a young player like john marino you want it to be as linear as possible right you you want it, everything mm-hmm. to kind of to flow and him having to switch sides is not the easiest thing uh, for people that have played the sport and especially as a defense, a young defenseman, not just a forward. It's because the forwards, right wings, left wings, they, you know, they have their own challenges, but when you're back in your own zone, that's tough. And I, I think there have been moments where you've seen him, you know, kind of working through the process of, of that switch. Yeah. I, I asked him about that the other day of like what those challenges are of playing on your offside. And he said, it's a lot of little things, you know, of like the pucks in the boards and like you're playing it on your backhand. And he did play a little bit on his offside in college. So it's not completely unfamiliar with him, but then again, I mean, you don't want him doing that for an extended period of time uh, just in his sophomore season. And he's paired with Cody Cece, who hasn't been that great either. Neither thing really setting him up for, uh, success and I mean there's really uh, these are you know these left-handed defensemen they're all pretty significant injuries they're gonna be out for a while uh, and there's really no reinforcements on the way I mean they did just add Yannick Weber um, who's probably gonna have to play on the left side but he is a righty so I mean that's still not not ideal I mean he'll probably not Kevin Church for now that out of the lineup but uh, that doesn't really solve the other problems. So should Alvine get on the phone with John Davidson and try to get uh, Jack Johnson back? <laughs> I don't know about Jack Johnson, but I mean, that's the thing. It's hard to make a trade because what do they have to give up? I mean, uh, picks prospects, they really don't have that many, uh, you know, would be that appealing yeah. to another team. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into that in the next segment. Right now, we're going to take a, our, our first break uh, on the uh, – 66 to 87 podcast and when we come back we're going to be joined by dave molinari who's on his way to new york city as we speak resident Hall of Famer Dave Molinari, who's traveling with the team. Uh, Dave, you've covered this franchise for decades. Uh, from a historical perspective, what are some of the other breaking news stories that rival Wednesday's announcement in terms of shock value? Uh, probably the only one I can think of that, that matched or surpassed it was the press conference that was called to announce that Mario Lemieux had cancer. Yeah. Um, Certainly, none of us saw that coming. He, he had had uh, quite a medical history to that point, but uh, most of it revolved around his back. We certainly didn't see anything uh, life-threatening. So that that one, uh, you know, uh, was uh, at least as much of a surprise, if not more so, 
but the announcement that uh, Jim Rutherford had resigned uh, certainly was a shocker. Yeah. Um, Dayon uh, wrote in his column on Wednesday, the Rutherford's decision to walk away was kind of tied to, you know, wanting a contract extension now and ownership kind of wanting to wait and play a little bit of a longer game. Of course, Jim's in the final year of his deal kind of makes him in a lame duck situation. From what you, you know, you're on the road with the team, what you, what, what you have heard, Dave, uh, what do you think was behind Jim's move and why walk away right now just a couple weeks into the season? Well, uh, people on both sides are, are being pretty tight-lipped about it. You know, if, uh, you know, I, I assume that Rutherford gave an explanation to uh, one of the higher-ups, whether it's David Morehouse or, or one of the owners, but he's uh, pointedly uh, rejected all attempts to, uh, to get an explanation from him, and uh, nobody from the other side is saying much of anything either. They, you know, the uh, position down uh, took in, in that column uh, certainly is plausible, and I, I think you know it's at this point the most likely of the uh, of the scenarios that that I've been able to envision. Um, I, I don't know that you know being a a lame duck GM is quite the same as being a lame duck coach or manager or anything of that sort. But I can see how, uh, how you know, Jim Rutherford would have would have wanted something uh, to fall back on, uh, you know, in terms of uh, security beyond this year. And you know, you can also understand how, uh, after the last couple of playoff disappointments, ownership and uh, upper management might have been interested in, you know. Uh, seeing exactly uh, what he's able to do in, in terms of uh, this year's team and, and the success it would have uh, not only in the regular season, but uh, as much or more so in the playoffs. So, yeah, I mean, I can, uh, I can see it from, from both perspectives. Yeah. Taylor, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this, on this topic. Yeah, I don't know. It just sounds like it came on really suddenly when when David Morehouse spoke to us on on Wednesday. He said he you know didn't hear anything from Rutherford about this until uh, Tuesday night. They spoke again Wednesday morning just because they needed to <laughs> add a defenseman before Rutherford left. Um, and then speaking with uh, you know Crosby and and Sullivan on on Thursday, um, they didn't find they told us they didn't find out until they stepped off the ice for uh, practice uh, Wednesday, which is just maybe like an hour before we found out. So yeah, it just came on really suddenly. No one saw this coming at all. No, and even uh, Patrick Alvin uh, said that he found out about it uh, around, uh, you know, 11.30 on uh, Wednesday morning, which, again, is not all that long before the, uh, before the announcement uh, was, was made to uh, the, the general public. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think very few people outside of the, uh, the Rutherford household uh, knew that anything like this might be coming. I mean, obviously, it's it's such a strange year uh, with with the pandemic, and you know uh, the financial situations of all these teams. But I would have to think, you know, along the lines here, somewhere in the off season, uh, I, I, uh, that that somewhere along the lines that 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 Jim 
had spoken with ownership about this. I, I can't believe that this was the, you know, this, if, if we're going with the thought of maybe the contract was an issue, had you guys heard anything kind of leading up to this? Had there been talk between Jim and the ownership group about um, maybe extending him? No, but uh, I mean, just because we hadn't heard, it doesn't mean that there, there hadn't been any discussions of that sort. Right. Um, Rutherford is uh, reasonably forthcoming about a lot of things. Uh, I don't know that he's ever said much about uh, his personal contract situation, though. And nobody on the ownership side is going to uh, say anything. Those uh, those people are extremely tight-lipped about uh, almost anything. So, you know, if anybody would have would have gone public with uh, whether there were talks going on or the state of those talks, it would have been Jim Rutherford. And honestly, I, I don't know that uh, anyone ever really brought it up with him recently. Um, you know, it, it wasn't an issue that had that had uh, generated much much public discussion. Yeah. All right. I want to I want to pose this question to both you guys here. Um, is this an attractive job for a potential GM? And I ask that in the sense that in a very sh- in the very short term, there will be an expectation to kind of ring one more cup run out of this kind of aging collection of stars, which again is what we all thought Jim was trying to do here uh, this season. But anyone who takes this job uh, is going to have to look at this also that in a couple of years. There's a rebuild coming, and it's probably sooner rather than later with a pipeline of prospects that is a trickle, not a flow. So I wonder with you guys, is this is this an attractive job? And is does it have maybe more obstacles than a normal GM job, whether it be a rebuild or to get a team over a line into a championship? It seems to combine both elements. Well, there are, you know, there are only 32 of these in the world. So um I, I don't think they'll have a, a hard time finding a qualified candidate who's, who's eager to take it on. Uh, that said, you know, it, it's a legitimate issue about, you know, there is, somebody is going to uh, be facing a, a very significant rebuild within a few years. And, and frankly, I, it's my contention that that should already be underway yeah. uh, to a certain extent. But, I mean, they've made it clear that, they're still all in on, on trying to win in the short term. Um, I'm not sure, especially given the uh, salary cap limitations that have uh, developed for this year, that any GM is going to have latitude to make uh, personnel adjustments that could possibly get this team to the position where it could be considered a, a favorite or even one of the really top tier uh, contenders for a cup. So, you know, I, I think they might be in, in a bit of denial here about what the, what the true state of, of this team is. Taylor. Yeah. But, I uh, mean, you no, know, I guess we'll see. And, and certainly uh, Patrick, Alvin, the way he's talked, um, he certainly sounds like he's planning to proceed on the, on the same track that Jim Rutherford was in terms of, you know, um, focusing on, on trying to win a championship here again in the, in the near future. Taylor, jump in there. 
Yeah, um, I mean, Morehouse said said Wednesday that they're not looking for uh, like a rebuilding GM. They're they're still win now. He said they're in win now three years ago mode. Um, they've been win now for a while. But um, yeah, like you said, I don't I don't think it's like uh, as an attractive as an option of like what what Jason Botterill has right now as the assistant GM in Seattle, where you know uh, they get to build a team from from the ground up, whereas you know. If, if if he comes here, anyone comes here, it, it is going to be like a, a non-playoff team probably in a couple of years. Um, yeah, so I don't. It, that it's tough. Yeah, Dave. Dave, to your point, obviously there's going to be any. There's only 32 of these jobs, right? I think it's just. I think it's interesting in that when we think of when GMs take over a, a, a job, it's either to rebuild the franchise or you're taking over someone who hasn't been able to rebuild the franchise. In other words, a rebuild has stalled and someone, another GM comes in then, or you have a case where the, the, the plan has just not, it has started to fade a little bit with that kind of how Jim came in, right? They were winning, they were, things were going well. And then you just bring in a GM because things have gotten stale. This is just, this, this situation is, 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 it's kind of weird. I just I was trying to think of another parallel to where a GM was going to come in and like we got to win right now, but in like two years from now, you know, we're going to have have some uh, some major issues. And I just can't think of one exactly in 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 that description. Yeah, I mean, if I can jump in here, this is just not common for you know when a GM takes over a team. It's not typically at this point where uh, a team is kind of on the way out. Uh, like you said, normally it might be like uh, after a team has been bad for a long time and, you know, they might fire a GM and then, you know, but in a situation like that, they might have prospects stocked up or, or picks stocked up and like the future, there's at least pieces to work with. But like, I mean, a, a GM they hire right now, it's, I mean, they don't have a first round pick next year. They, uh, they don't really have that many great prospects in the pipeline that, you know, there, there's, you know, hope for, you know, they could carry this team uh to you know the playoffs for a bunch of years uh coming so i mean yeah whoever whoever takes on the job is going to have a, a a tough a tough role i mean see what approach they take because you know uh you know when the time does come that they they agree to get into a rebuild do they do it uh in its entirety you know do you two or three years from now, trade uh, Jake Gensel and John Marino and, uh, you know, Tristan Jari in uh, an effort to, uh, you know, uh, acquire picks and, and get prospects and uh, really do it almost like an expansion team? Or do you try to uh, build around those guys and hope to catch lightning in a bottle with some of your draft picks? It'll, it'll be interesting to see the approach that uh, – the guy running the show in a few years will take. And joining us in our next segment will be Larry Brooks from the New York Post here on 66 to 87 podcast. Welcome our first guest to the 66 to 87 podcast. And like our own Dave Molinari, he's a Hockey Hall of Fame writer. Larry Brooks, the New York Post. Larry, thanks for taking some time to join us today. Uh, my pleasure, Tom. 
obviously all the news here in Pittsburgh is about Jim Rutherford's decision to step down. I'm wondering what you kind of make of this move uh, just two weeks into the season from, from somebody outside the market. What, what's your read on this? Stunning. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, uh, I guess there are uh, different synonyms for stunning, but I think everyone would use one of them. Um, I, you know, I've known Jim for a long time and we've had a relationship. He's a huge Yankees fan. And so a lot of our conversation has revolved around the Yankees and he would show me on his phone that he had the post app so he could follow the Yankees every day. So uh, I think Jim is a great guy. I, I The inference is, I think, that there was an issue in the front office. And, you know, in, in these times when you see a release or you see on Twitter that someone is resigning for personal reasons, it, it starts, you know, it, it, uh, it kind of causes a alarm bells to ring and in this environment but um fortunately and thankfully um no 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 issues you know when you see a guy's resigning for personal issues but certainly nothing no negative connotations and the few people i've talked to um you know believe that there was some sort of um an issue maybe over um responsibility or a move that he wanted to make but some sort of break in the organization and and i think that um, um that is supported as far as we know by his comments that he would look to work again at some point so when his contract is is over in pittsburgh so it sounds like an issue within the pittsburgh organization yeah, we're going to get to that question in a bit, too. In our last segment, uh, Larry, we, I had posted a question to Dave and, and Taylor whether they thought this was an attractive job, given the pressure to win now, but knowing in about a year or two, you're going to have to rebuild this organization with very limited resources, and that's coming right around the corner. Obviously, yeah. there's only 32 of these jobs, but just, you know, is this job as attractive as it maybe would have been three or four years ago? I think it's a pertinent question. And the answer, it's funny, I was just having that conversation with someone within the last 45 minutes. And I think the answer is no. Um, again, if if you have a shot at a first time job, listen, you, you know, the money is there, or, or you think the money is there. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, an organization that's had great success. But I think there are two issues, actually. One is the lack of uh, lack of prospects in the organization and the you know the uh, trajectory of both uh, Crosby and Malkin's career and and Latang, um, and and I think there's also a question of is is Mario Lemieux looking over your shoulder? Is Mario you know how what authority do you have if you're a first time GM coming into that job? What is your line of authority? How much authority do you have? And I think that's a I think that's an element that everyone, every candidate for the job is going to need to be, is going to need to ask and have to be satisfied with the answer. I think, and I don't think it's any different there than say it was in Florida when uh, the Panthers were looking for a GM in the off season. But um, here, you know, there is one person and and how involved is Mario Lemieux in their day-to-day decision-making. And if, you know, if the GM wants to make a big move, um, does he have the authority to do that, or might he be uh, might he have to uh, 
get the assent of of Mario. And of course, every GM needs the assent of an owner to make a big money move. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about hockey decisions. So sure. I think there are a couple of elements that go into that, but I, I, I think there are serious questions for candidates um, to confront. Okay. Um, I, I want to throw this out to both of you guys. Also, we'll start with Larry. You know, Jim turns Jim Rutherford turns 72 on February 17th. Uh, do you expect him? I know he says he wants to take some time and then he'll he'll decide whether he wants to get back into this. Larry, do you expect him? To, do you, do we expect to see him in the league here again somewhere else? I, th- I, th- I think if he wants to, he'll be in the league. You know, in what capacity? I don't know. Um, you know, for instance, we know that Craig Patrick for a long time was uh, was a consultant. And we know Cliff Fletcher has been a consultant. Um, if that's something Jim wants to do, I'm, sh- I'm sure he'd have no trouble getting that kind of a job. If he if he's actually interested in, in being a general manager, um, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, there I, I don't know how many openings there'll be this offseason. Um, but I, I'm not sure that age is is a disqualifying factor at this point. Um, there are, you know, Lou Lamorello is is an, is an older fellow. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I think he's doing the job pretty well. So <laughs> yes, I'm not is. sure the age is, is a disqualifying factor. I think, I think um, if Jim wants back in the league, he'll certainly have a have a landing spot. What what the job is 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 another question. Taylor, your thoughts on 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 a uh, another appearance of Jim Rutherford somewhere within the league? Yeah, I mean, as as a consultant, I mean. Uh, Larry brought up Craig Patrick. Craig Patrick's still there every every Penguins game. Eddie Johnston's still there uh, every home games, so, and you know in the locker room after talking to guys. So I mean something like that maybe. Um, I I don't think age is a disqualifying factor, but I mean if it's a team looking to rebuild and uh, you know have a GM in it, you know for the long haul, then I, it might be it might be tricky because you don't know how many years Rutherford wants to be a you know main GM yeah. uh, in that role. So I mean that 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 might be tough. But I mean as a consultant, uh, I mean that that seems like it could be perfect. Yeah, uh, Larry Taylor and I talked about this in, in, in an earlier segment, but I wanted to get your thoughts too. You know, it's early days here in this in this in this search. But who do you think would make a good candidate here? If you if you had to your with your sources, if you had to, two or three guys that that might make a good GM candidate here, who do you think it might be? Well, I haven't consulted any of my sources. So. <laughs> Honestly, it, it depends what they're looking for, right? It, it depends. Are they looking for a younger individual who would be going into his first GM's job? Are, the, are they looking for someone with experience in that job? Uh, you know, the, I think there are the usual suspects. Um, I would expect that Chris Drury, who uh, is the assistant general manager here in New York with the Rangers, um, will be on a list. Um, he, he was in Florida um, and then he withdrew from consideration. So I, I think I think Drury is regarded around the league as, as one of the bright um, young front office people who is going to eventually step up into a GM's job, whether um, whether the Penguins intend to fill it during this season, I, th- I think that it would be pretty difficult to get someone out of an organization midseason. I'm, I'm not sure that the Rangers would be amenable to that. Um, maybe they would. I don't want to talk for them, but that's that's pretty tough in the middle of the season to lose a guy who has a lot of responsibility, and Chris Drury does in the Ranger organization. So, again, I, I'm not sure what the Penguins are going to be looking for. Um, they could go either way. If, you know, again – 
and 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 on top of that is this going to are they looking for a general manager who is going to tell them yes i think you guys can mount up for another cup run in the next two or three years do they want to hear that or are they willing to hear hey listen you've got to tear it down you've got to tear it down and and build it back up again and i'm not so sure how how uh how willing they are to hear that so, you, so I'm, I'm you, not sure. you're not sure larry you're you're not sure that mario lemieux would send out a letter yeah we 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 know we we know how sometimes you can uh your best intentions of of you know rebuilding sometimes as right now the rangers are have had a little bit of a blip in the road but let let me get to let me get taylor in here and then larry as well on on this question and we'll kind of round out with the the the, the jim rutherford portion of our show which has been about 90 percent of it what is people always talk about legacies, but now that Jim is gone, what is his legacy in this chapter of his career in, in Pittsburgh? Obviously, he had done so well in Carolina, uh, didn't necessarily have to come here uh, to really be known as a really good builder. But what will you? Th- what should we think about when we talk about Jim Rutherford in Pitt- the Pittsburgh years? Well, I think actually his last few years in Carolina were pretty disappointing. And yeah. I think he resurrected his legacy with the work he did in Pittsburgh. Um, yeah. He signs, you know, there were some, and, and you never really know um, how much is ownership, how much is GM on, on certain decisions, un, unless you're in the room. Um, but I thought some of the contracts, some of the, some of the contract decisions in, in Carolina were, you know, bizarre at the end. And then I, I thought, uh, you know, he he uh, rebuilt his his standing. And and um, again, if, if you're pushed by ownership to, to attempt to continue to win, even though you may not have the horses, it you know, it it um, it skews what you're what you're permitted to do. So we don't know, you know, did Rutherford was he all in on this or was he um, a voice saying, look, we need to pull back a little bit. We, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I think we need to restock the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, he's one of, you know, he is one of the most popular guys around. I think he's respected. I, I believe everyone, everyone um, who knows Jim believes he's a man of integrity. So I, I think that's his legacy, you know, winning cups and, and leaving a legacy of, of integrity behind Taylor, your your thoughts on on the on the Jim Rutherford era in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I mean his path here kind of followed a similar path in Carolina, where you know won and then kind of some questionable moves at the end, but um, the highs here were just that much higher. Um, I mean the the back to back cups, obviously. Yeah. I mean you you got to remember him as the guy that uh, helped get you know this core uh, over the edge when they were so close for so long and just had, you know, so many disappointing playoff exits. He made the moves that um, got them those back-to-back cups and really uh, made the, this era what it was with, with Crosby and Malkin and, and this core. You know, I, I've been in Columbus with, with where, where Yarmo Kekalainen has been and Yarmo reminds me of Jim in one sense. Some guys don't want to make those big deals Jim is never afraid right. to make big trades. And, and Larry, when you look around the league, is, is that how uncommon or common is that? Because it seems to mean not as many guys are willing to make these deals the way that Jim has made them over the years. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair point. And, and I think maybe, 
maybe that comes with age a little bit, although, you know, yeah. Yarmo is, <laughs> Yarmo's not an older guy. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, may, maybe when, you know, when you, you have experience, you've already won, um, you are more, you are more willing to, to take a risk here and there and, and go for it. But I, I think that's a good point. He's, he is, you know, he's an old school kind of guy. He wants to make hockey trades. Um, you know, they, they, have had some cap issues, but any successful team has cap issues. I, yeah. I I find it difficult to blame general managers of successful teams for cap issues because, um, you know, the, the cap is meant to to punish successful teams. So um, general managers of successful teams always have to work around that. And I, I think he's done a, a pretty good job. You know, you can look at a couple of um, moves he's made and, and question them, but, but Taylor's a you know, he, you know, the Penguins had stalled. There's no question about it. They right. had stalled. They had stalled under uh, Ray Shiro, who, who, you know, was very successful in his run in Pittsburgh. Um, then they lost to the Rangers two years in a row in the playoffs, and they were stuck. You know, they had made a couple of coaching decisions that that maybe were, you know, didn't work out. Um, and you know, Jim put them back on the course to to be a champion. And and honestly, I, I think, you know, the back to back came out of nowhere. It really did. Yeah, I know. And that second team, I, I don't think I don't think either team rates as one of the great teams in, in NHL history or even one of even one of the great teams in, in post cap history. I, you know, I think they're you know, a good team. I don't think one of the great teams, but I think that winning that second one is is perhaps the greatest feat of the hard cap era. To, yeah. to have a team be able to win twice, and the one year, and, and forgive me, I forget which one it was, but the one year they were decimated with injuries on on the back end, right? They won without the tang, didn't they? Second year, so, I believe, right, right, right. So, um, you know, so so that so that um, winning the back to back stands as as I think one of the most noteworthy achievements of of the hard cap era. Larry, we cannot let you go, even though we have one other question, but we can't let you go in Pittsburgh podcast without talking about Jack Johnson and how things have started there. Because uh, Jack was, uh, fair or not, was a lightning rod in his couple years here in Pittsburgh. And uh, we saw that he was scratched once. And, and I, I know that I think he missed last night's game. Uh, the second game in Buffalo with with an injury, but how has that gone? How has that experience gone so far? He's a lightning rod here too, because he was a lightning rod in Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, and and because you know, let's let's be honest, his his um, peripherals and analytics were just so bad that alarm bells rang when the Rangers signed him, and and they haven't let up. Um, in Pittsburgh, I think one of the issues was the contract. In New York, certainly it isn't. You know, he's on a one-year deal for 1.15. Um, so that's not an issue. The issue is that he's that he is essentially blocking a younger player who might play, um, and he hadn't. He has not played especially well in the first few games. He's he's taken some bad penalties. Um, he is reputed to be a very strong penalty killer. That. I guess recommends him or recommended him when Jacques Martin came over from Pittsburgh is now uh, the lead assistant for defense in New York. And Jacques Martin was a big booster of his and, and they talked about his ability to kill penalties. Now, listen, it is such a small sample size. It's, it's unfair right. to draw conclusions, but 
<laughs> the Rangers, uh, the Rangers in their, in their first six games had surrendered six uh, power play goals. He was in the penalty box for two of them and was on the ice for three, um, not playing particularly well. So, um, you know, he and Brendan Smith have sort of been rotating in that sixth defenseman spot. He's he's gaining entirely too much attention for a sixth defenseman. You know, <laughs> their problem has not been their sixth defenseman. He, hey, Taylor, does that sound familiar? Yeah, it, <laughs> it does. Defenseman, the twelfth forward. Who's you know? How come this guy is scratched? Well, you know this, and, and you know, the twelfth forward is getting seven minutes a night, um, and the sixth defenseman is the sixth defenseman. But he does get penalty killing time, so um, it, it hasn't been especially a smooth opening two weeks for Jack Johnson. Yeah, I mean he he trends on Twitter every game. I, I think, but I mean I mean penalty killing. He he really wasn't that bad of a penalty killer here. Yeah. I know when, uh, you know we were talking about you know what if if they trade him if they buy him out you know who's gonna you know you know be able to clear the net clear the crease like he does right. on, in in the PK. Um, I think the Penguins are doing just fine without him, but I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, it's kind of a similar story here. I mean, because what he was paired with, you know, Justin Schultz here towards the end, and that wasn't doing him any favors. And um, I mean, what he was paired with Tony D'Angelo there in New York, and it doesn't seem like Tony's doing him any favors there either. Well, uh, it hasn't been a great, it hasn't been a great mix, but neither has the Brendan Smith D'Angelo pair. Right? Well, they've only they've only been together for one game or two. So, you know, the third pair has been an issue for the Rangers. But, um, again, Jack Johnson came in um, with a just a terrible reputation off, off of last season. And, you know, he was a pretty decent defenseman. He, I mean, he's been in the league a long time, you know. And, and you know, you, 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 you have a career like that. You're pretty, you, you've had a pretty good career. But for whatever reason, he's, he's – yep. uh, He's uh, taken up a lot more time than a sixth defenseman usually does. The wheels came off. They started to come off in the last year in Columbus. So the, the, his his penultimate year in Columbus, I would say that he was part of one of the better shutdown pairs in the league with David Savard. And I think what everyone's mm -hmm. kind of now figured out, <laughs> there was a reason for that because David Savard now yeah. plays well with everybody. Yeah, And people in Columbus were like, they could not believe when the Penguins signed Jack. And then, of course, there was the obviously the Sidney Crosby connection. They're, they're, they're friends. And, uh, you know, it's kind of gone from there. Larry, I want to get you on one more topic. He had been scratched, right, in the playoffs? And, yes, yes, right? yes, yes, and, yes. And then Pittsburgh gave him the big contract. And, and yeah. Yeah, that was uh, – Well, and to chime in on that, when he came in um, – I, I think it was Rutherford that said, you know, I, I know why Jack was, oh, from, but, but then, it, you know, <laughs> but it, it seems like wherever he goes, like a coach right. GM that's defends right. him with like, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's not actually as bad as people think. And then that's, he right. Up there. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. And then, but, and then also the, that, that comment from Jim Rutherford, uh, uh, John Tortorella doesn't have as many blowups as he, as he used to have. He's, he's kind of, He's kind of been a little bit milder, but that was a legendary one in the last uh, couple of years after, yeah. after Rutherford's comment. Hey, Larry, yeah. I want to get you out of here on this. Uh, obviously, your Slap Shops column is a must-read for, for all hockey fans. And over the holidays, you wrote about the Penguins being the only major North American sports franchise to receive a check from the Paycheck 
uh, protection program. A team valued at $650 million by Forbes received $4.82 million COVID loan. I'm just wondering, you know, in, in, the, in the weeks since then, just your thoughts on the franchise's decision to apply for aid. Well, it seems like they went for a, a, a 1% interest loan. Um, they, they, uh, as far as, as far as I can tell, they do not qualify for, um, for amnesty on, on repayment. They're going to have to repay it because they did not use it, um, in the manner prescribed in order, in order to, uh, be relieved of the debt. So it seems to me that they, they took out a 1% loan. It's my understanding, um, after having done some research that the Penguins are not the only company owned or co-owned by Ron Burkle to apply for and receive PPP funds. And I know of at least one other um, company in California um, that received the PPP loan. And I'm told by employees there um, were layoffs in that corporation anyway. So I, I you know, I, I, I don't have the specifics. I don't want this to be a political debate about whether it was proper or not. Right. I do think it stands out that there was one team in one team among the four major sports leagues in North America to take out a PPP loan. Now, the, the Lakers did originally. Um, there was an uproar and they returned the money or they didn't go through the process. But the Penguins are the only one, the only team in North America to take out a, a PPP loan. And, and the owner, of course, then um, a couple of months later, spent millions of dollars to buy Neverland. So <laughs> yeah. we know, you know, we know yeah. that there, there are reasons why wealthy people are wealthy, and that's because they don't like to spend their own money. So exactly. I'm Larry. So. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you somewhere down the line when all of this, all of this plague finally lifts, and we can somehow get back to some kind of normalcy. Uh, and that's it for us today. Our first sixty-six to eighty-seven podcast is in the books. Hope you join us again next week on DK Sports Radio. <laughs>